Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of the Thinking Commercially podcast, the business podcast that helps students, recent graduates build their commercial knowledge. It's with me, Ben Tricks, and also, as always, we're joined by Chris Stokes, the author and commercial awareness expert. You may have read his books, All You Need to Know About the City, All You Need to Know About Commercial Awareness. Fantastic to have his expertise. And we'll be talking about competition and the big tech companies, interest rates and the potential that the UK could even go to negative interest rates, um, the high street and how it's changing. And also the rise of reading in 2020 and other great hobbies people have taken up during this turbulent year. Um, let's get started. Welcome back to the Thinking Commercially podcast. I'm again joined by Chris Stokes. Welcome to you, Chris. Thank you very much, Ben. Hello, everybody. Hi, Chris. How's it, how's it been going lately on the run-up to Christmas? We've just ended our second kind of formal lockdown. How have you been keeping over the last uh, month or so? Very well indeed. Uh, quite busy and obviously keeping an eye on uh, business news stories for, uh, for this podcast. Fan, fantastic. Um, no, always, always good. Lots of, uh, lots of stuff has been happening lately. Um, you'd see a lot across, across the news. Um, very exciting news about the vaccine, um, a bit about Brexit as well. Um, but we're here going to be talking about some of the kind of core themes that have come out over the last um, few months, um, really to just to build your um, commercial awareness. There's no one better than um, Chris himself to to talk you through these these stories, um, and it's fantastic to be back. Um, this is our second episode. Uh, we did the first. We didn't know how um, what it was going to be like, what uh, people are going to think. We've had some fantastic comments from from everyone as well. Um, to be honest with you, Chris, I feel like um, it's mainly your fan mail that I'm getting emails about about how fantastic you you've been. Um, so so yeah. So thank you for everyone who has been listening, who recommended it. Um, we also have a LinkedIn group um, now called Thinking Commercially, very original, but Think Commercially. So if you want to go on there, tell us what stories you want to hear over the coming months. Um, we can hopefully accommodate those as best as possible. Um, we're not quite, maybe not quite cool enough yet for, for Instagram, but if someone, if we have a fan out there, I don't know, Chris, do you want to, did you take that, the, side, the Instagram side of things? No, I can hear him sort of looking shaking, but shaking his head. Um, but yes, um, if uh, if anyone sort of wants, um, I'm sure we could get some help for an Instagram channel as 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 well. Um, but anyway, let's let's kick off. Uh, we've got um, four stories again today, and uh, can't wait to get started. Right, story number one. The first thing that we wanted to cover, and actually it was uh, something that someone messaged me in the last couple of weeks about wanting to find out a little bit more. And I think it's something which has been so pertinent across the news, probably for the last few years, if not longer, is about those five big tech companies, the, the likes of you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, those, those big, big companies. And the, that kind of feeling um, from government more generally across, across the press that um, in terms of their competition, that maybe they're sort of stifling it, possibly even unfairly stifling competition about the, um, about the actions that, that they're taking. And generally that feeling that possibly they need uh, breaking up or those sort of things about whether, whether they should be sort of broken up. And so, uh, Chris, I kind of want to touch upon this, maybe not getting into kind of firm specifics or anything like that, but um, kind of, I guess, the power of the big tech technology firms and the possible or the perceived problems that it might have caused. What are your, what's your kind of thinking about this, this story? 
Well, the, the, the first thing, Ben, is, is to, to kind of grapple with the language because um, over in Europe, uh, we, we talk about competition and competition laws are, are laid down by governments to prevent businesses becoming monopolistic because if a business is too market dominant, then it can basically control prices and that's not good for consumers. In, in the states where these actions tend to be led because the, 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 the big tech companies are, are states-based, it's called antitrust. And this is quite a peculiar term because um, I mean, by background, I'm a lawyer and, and trust has a particular meaning. But the reason it's, it's called antitrust is actually historic. And, and what, I, what I find most interesting about this is that obviously it seems quite new to us and it's a big news story, but antitrust regulation has been going on for o- over a century. And it came to be called trust because go- going back to the early 1900s, big, big businesses were called trusts. That's what they were referred to as, uh, possibly because they had individuals who kind of dominated them. So it was almost as if these individuals were, were running them as, as personal fiefdoms. But one of the first uh, big antitrust measures was the breaking up of uh, John D. Rockefeller's oil company, which was called Standard Oil. And this was because it was market dominant. It was broken up into a number of names which are still with us. So uh, it was broken up into, for example, Standard Oil of New Jersey, which became what we now call Exxon. Standard Oil of New York, which became Mobil, and of course Exxon and Mobil have since merged. And then there are other Standard Oils uh, like uh, Amoco, which was Standard Oil of Indiana, and Chevron, Standard Oil of California. What's interesting is that you still see this internationally because the oil company Esso, it's called Esso because it is S Standard O Oil. So that that was really the start of this whole idea of government taking action against monopolistic businesses. But I, I, I think, and without being too historic about it, the most interesting about, thing about what's happening at the moment is to trace it back 20 odd years to uh, actually what happened to Microsoft, because at the end of the 1990s, Microsoft was bundling uh, its uh, internet search engine, which was called Internet Explorer, with Windows. And it was requiring hardware manufacturers when they made these computers to install the two together. And at the time, there was a business called Netscape, which was a search engine, and it was basically crowded out. So the the Department of Justice took the lead in a federal action involving a number of US states against Microsoft. Uh, And interestingly, the first ruling was to break Microsoft up. But that was reversed on appeal, and Microsoft argued that actually, provided it fulfilled the various requirements that the uh, Department of Justice, the DOJ, laid down to open up to competition, then uh, it didn't need to be broken up. So actually, what, what's ironic about the action that the Department of Justice took against Microsoft in, in the late 1990s was that, but for that action, businesses like Google and Facebook would not be around now, because it was uh, imposing those conditions on Microsoft to basically open up to competition that allowed Google to compete with the Microsoft product Bing and allowed Facebook to compete with MySpace. So we're in a position now 20 years on and market observers reckon that the antitrust experts at the DOJ 
work in a kind of 20 or 30 year cycle. We're really at a point where those nascent businesses which were able to compete with Microsoft because of the DOJ action 20 years ago are themselves now in market dominant positions. So I think looking at it from a historical perspective is actually quite interesting. And it's far more common than one thinks. So in the 1980s, uh, and this was when telephone companies were basically uh, nationalized entities in the States, the, the dominant player was, was called Bell. And uh, it was broken up into AT&T, which is still around, which is the long distance telephony supplier, and what were called Baby Bells, which were seven regional companies. They were called Bells because the logo of all of them was, was an, an actual Bell. And these were, were regional and, and local players. So this idea of antitrust action is far more prevalent than, than we tend to think. It's just that when it hits the headlines, because there are very big businesses involved, it obviously becomes that much more newsworthy. Yeah, 100%. I think with with this one as as well, and um, it's good to kind of get a bit of a historical perspective. Um, people listening might have seen the um, the action taken by the Department of Justice um, with uh, with Google over potentially partnerships that meant that they had to use their search engine on certain devices or browsers. And also much more recently in the last few days with, uh, with Facebook, um, the federal uh, government in the US looking into the sort of acquisitions they did of the likes of um, WhatsApp and Instagram. And my kind of sense of it, because in business, you're always looking to build moats around um, your business. You're always looking to, to, to you know, build things within the business to mean that the competition can't easily, uh, let's say, attack you in that example, but basically can't steal that kind of market share easily. So whether it's building up um, great tech assets, a brilliant brand. Um, to to mean that it's very difficult for a new a new company to come and take your market share or even an existing competitor to get um, one up on you. So, what I really kind of want to sort of talk to you, about, Chris, a little bit about is is where does it become do, making good commercial decisions, and then where does the line start where it comes to unfairly stifling competition? Well, you see, I think this is a really really interesting question because. Um, There's no doubt if you look at, say, Amazon, it's been incredibly innovative in terms of the consumer benefits that it's brought. And that in turn has has given it a a market dominant position. But people behind uh, Jeff Jeff Bezos and and Google, people behind these businesses would argue that it is by developing these market positions that they are able to be innovative. You see, the interesting thing with Google is that it has 70 different subsidiaries operating in lots of very interesting areas, such as driverless cars. And of course, its most well-known one is DeepMind. Now, DeepMind, Google has has been funding for a long time. And DeepMind DeepMind came up with that uh, incredible AI that devised a completely unexpected move in the game Go, which at the time, experts said that was a mistake. And actually, it was a game-winning move, completely unexpected by experts who, who play Go. And more recently, and this is relevant to all of the interest we, we have in vaccines, has, has come up with the um, analysis of proteins that enables us now to understand how, how proteins work in the context of vaccines. So you see, on the one hand, these players can say that it's only because they have this market debt that they're able to fund um, 
other spin-offs to the extent that they do. But the, the interesting thing is that the, the what commentators think is that if any of these actions uh, succeed, usually the regulators give the company concerned quite a long time to make the necessary adjustments, which is fair enough. And so over a 10-year period, the thinking is that companies like Google would actually have a, enough time to enable these, these startups that they're funding to themselves develop in, into businesses that can, that can stand alone. And the interesting thing about Microsoft is that even when it was subject to this uh, very long uh, Department of Justice uh, action, its share price actually went up quite a bit. So one might think that that these regulatory initiatives kind of damage businesses, but in a in a bizarre kind of way, they often open up the the, the next stage of competition, which is where this kind of segues into at what point do businesses generally feel that they've become too too big? And and I mean, just as we're speaking now, IBM has announced that it's going to, it's quite likely to break itself up. And again, what's ironic about this is that IBM was itself the subject of a decade long action by the Department of Justice when well before the days of Microsoft and, and the, the and mobile devices, IBM was the dominant player in what was called the mainframe uh, market. Because in those days, the the received wisdom was that the world was going to be run by six to eight massive mainframes manufactured and, and run by, by IBM. So I think what this leads to is the interesting discussion is at, at what point should businesses start to themselves feel they're, they're, they're too big? Yeah, I think absolutely. And um, yeah, we've seen that with the figures that now that I think the combined five biggest tech companies now have a market capitalization of about 5 trillion, which is just meteoric. It's so, so big to even get your head around. I think they almost generate, I think it's a generate a revenue of about 900 billion um, between them. Um, and that hasn't changed actually over lockdown. They've been able to get bigger and bigger. Um, you probably would have seen um, in the news lately about um, Jeff Bezos being kind of the world's richest person and it's just astronomical amounts amounts of money and before we leave this story there's one thing i want to talk about chris because everyone talks about these companies needing to break up what does that actually mean you've mentioned ibm who are taking the probably a proactive decision to split their business into two um, but when the company breaks up what what are we talking about there it's a really good question, Ben. And, and um, I, I mean, in, in the case of the, the Microsoft action 20 years ago, Microsoft itself didn't break up in the end. It was able to, to uh, negotiate agreement with various restrictions on how it would uh, continue in business. But generally speaking, it, it does mean uh, breaking up. But, but actually, even this is much more common than, than one thinks. So in, in business, there's quite a lot of it's a matter of fashion. So at one point, businesses might specialize, you know, what we do is X, this is what we do really well, and we don't do anything else. So everything else we outsource. So we outsource our catering, we outsource the maintenance of our in-house provisions, you know, the, 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 uh, the restrooms, for example, we get other people to come in and do that, because that's not what we're about as a business. 
And then after a while, businesses start to say, well, actually, we're spending quite a lot of money on outsourcing this stuff. Why don't we just do it ourselves? So they start they start to kind of expand. And also they start to think, well, we don't want to be over-specialized because it could be quite risky. Let's move into other sectors because we're really good at managing ourselves in this sector. I'm sure we can bring that expertise to other sectors. So business actually is often a matter of fashion. And certainly in the 80s and 90s, there, there was a fashion for businesses to become what are called, called conglomerates. So there were businesses in the UK like Hanson Trust and Williams, which actually did a whole diversified number of things. And on the one hand, you could say, well, this is great because this is risk diversification. And on the other hand, you'd say, well, this is crazy because why should somebody who's, who's I mean, in the case of Williams, on the one hand, they ran RHM, the bakers. And then on the other hand, they own Chubb, which did fire escapes and, and, and fire extinguishers. What, what is the connection there? And what happens is markets themselves react and they start to think, well, hang on a minute. In the case of IBM, the reason I'm, I suspect why IBM is, is thinking of splitting itself up is because the, the, the board of IBM reckoned that its share price does not reflect the value inherent in the business. And that's because the market thinks running businesses that actually have less and less in common with each other is an overhead that you can do without. So the business says, well, let's split ourselves into the, in this case, the two components that make the business up. And each will then be much leaner and more efficient. And that will realize shareholder value because their share prices will go up. So what I think is most interesting about this story is it changes one's view of the corporate environment as being very static with names that are always there. It's actually business is very dynamic. And the last kind of stat or story I'll throw at you is if you look at the FTSE 100, which is the Financial Times Stock Exchange list of the 100 largest companies listed on the London Stock Exchange by market capitalization, because these names have been around for a while, you tend to think that it's pretty dodgy and it doesn't change. But if you go back 10 years and look at the FTSE 100 10 years ago, 40 of those companies that were there 10 years ago are not in the FTSE 100 anymore. In other words, they've disappeared because they got too small or they've been taken over. So I think what this story just reminds us is that the whole business world is really, really dynamic. And that's because it's constantly competing to provide innovations that benefit us as consumers. Thank you so much. I think we'll leave that story there. I feel it's one that we could have talked about for a long while, but let's uh, move on. So our second story for this month is around interest rates and more specifically negative interest rates. And I was actually telling Chris before the the call, and I think he had a little bit of a chuckle about it, that um, it's uh, it's one of my favorite topics to talk about it and it's uh, how it impacts, um, you know, how what the government is trying to do in terms of simulating, stimulating money around the economy and getting people spending or saving or borrowing um, again. So I'm really excited personally to be uh, talking um, about this. Um, you might have seen in uh, very recent times, uh, there's been a lot of uh, in the news around um, whether the Bank of England will set the base rate to a negative point. Um, right now, it's on 0.1%, which is the, uh, the lowest it's, uh, it's been um, for, well, for forever. And um, yeah, it's uh, so potentially on the cusp of, of going negative, depending on what the Bank of England um, decide. Um, but Chris, before we get into uh, the specifics of negative interest rates, um, why are interest rates so important? And what does it mean when the Bank of England says it's setting an interest rate? Very, very, very good point, Ben. I mean, the, the, the way I 
I look at this is I set it in the context of inflation and I'm not an economist, so I'm sure this explanation is, is full of holes, but um, in, inflation is when the real value of money gets eroded. So what do I mean by that? Well, if I go to the, the baker today and I produce a, a pound coin from my pocket and walk out with a loaf, then, then the real value of my pound is it buys me a loaf. But if I go to the baker tomorrow and that loaf of bread now costs one pound and five pence, although the pound in my pocket hasn't changed, it's still the same coin. It's real value. What it will actually buy me has gone down. Now, in an inflationary environment, the real value of money goes down. What, what, what causes this? Well, it, it usually happens when an economy is doing really well. So more and more people are in work, more and more people are earning money, more and more people are spending money. And that increased demand for everything pushes prices up. Governments and central banks uh, don't mind a small amount of inflation, but when it gets uh, out of hand, it means that there are segments of society, uh, the less well-off, who are disadvantaged because uh, prices go up. And, and so these are the elderly, uh, uh, people on low incomes, and people without jobs on benefits. So governments like to keep inflation under control. Just coming up to the end of this rather tedious explanation, how do they do that? Well, there are two ways. One is by raising taxes, which is often unpopular, but that has the effect of, uh, of forcing people to spend less because they've got less money in their pocket. The other way is by increasing interest rates, which is usually a central bank function. Increasing interest rates has the effect of raising the cost of borrowing, so people borrow less, so they spend less. So uh, I look at interest rates moving up or down as a function of where we are in relation to inflation. So um, when the Bank of England sort of says that it's setting a, an interest rate or base rate, um, what, does, what does that sort of mean? How does that work in the economy? What actually happens after they set that percentage point and everything like that? Again, it's a really good question because this is about the kind of the plumbing of the financial markets. Essentially, the relationship between a central bank and what you and I would call a lending bank, the, the other, the, the, the kind of the high street banks within its territory, is a very symbiotic one because there is a point at which money becomes almost a kind of conceptual thing. So money comes from the central bank. The central bank is in charge of the money supply and basically makes available money to banks. And it's that money that they lend out. When we deposit money with a bank, the bank may lend it out, the high street bank may lend it out, or it may park it with the central bank and own, uh, earn an overnight rate of interest because it doesn't want to use that money. When the central bank sets interest rates, this is a signal to uh, high street banks about the level at which they should charge interest. And when the central bank sets a negative interest rate, from, from the point of view of people like us, it's not actually going to have a direct impact on us because none of us as individuals would be able to go to a bank and say, oh, interest rates are negative. I want to borrow £500 off you and you're going to pay me for the privilege of borrowing the money. It's just not going to happen. But what it is, negative interest rate is a signal from central, a central bank to the lending banks that if they decide to park money with it, they're going to have to pay it for the privilege of doing that. Basically, what it's saying is, 
we don't want the central bank to accept your deposits. That is money that you should be pumping out into the economy. So basically what the central bank is doing is saying when interest rates are negative, that's because we want you lending banks to pump more money in the economy. Why does the central bank do this? Because although inflation, as I mentioned, is uh, too much inflation is not a good thing. The opposite of that, which is deflation, is actually even worse. Um, what happens in an, in an inflationary environment is, let's say I want to buy a washing machine. So I think, oh, I'd better go out and buy that washing machine today because prices are going up. I don't want to postpone that decision until tomorrow. And of course, going out and buying that washing machine today is itself inflationary because I'm just adding to the increased demand for washing machines. In a deflationary environment, I'm thinking, mm, I need a washing machine but I'm not going to buy it today because prices will be lower tomorrow. And then when tomorrow comes, I'm not going to buy it tomorrow either because prices will be lower the next day. So you get into what's called a deflationary spiral. And this is what happened to Japan in the 1990s. And when you're in a deflationary spiral, less and less gets bought. So less and less gets produced. So jobs start to disappear because there's less demand for everything. And what governments then have to do is to go in for what's called fiscal stimulus, which is basically saying we, the government, are going to pump money into the economy to try to get the economy sparking into life. So what the Japanese government did was it spent a lot of money on what became known as white elephant projects because they weren't very useful, building motorways that didn't go anywhere, bridges that didn't cross anything. And it's only recently that the Japanese government has changed the fiscal stimulus that it's become much more productive. So in more recent years, the government has been putting money into childcare and healthcare in order to get uh, more women back into the workplace. And that has actually sparked the economy because now that more people are working, more people are earning, more people are spending money, the economy is beginning to lift off. So at the moment, we're obviously in a, a very difficult time economically, um, and the rates reflect that, obviously, at 0.1%, lowest they've ever been. Um, it means that the, the government wants banks to lend, people to spend. Um, but in the UK, we've actually had very low interest rates um, since the 2008 you know, previous financial recession, it went down to about a percent and then went down to 0.5%. But I remember when I was growing up in sort of the sort of the, the, the late 90s, mid 90s and into the um, sort of early noughties, um, interest rates um, in probably a reasonably good economic time were more like, you know, five, 6%. Um, and I remember going into Halifax as I as did and I'd get, you know, every money I saved, I'd get um, 5% a year or something, something similar, similar a year on my small amounts of uh, savings I could put away or if I had anything. Um, so is there a problem? It's, it's been almost a decade, if not a little bit more, of, of very low interest rates. Does that become a problem for the economy? Does it need to raise them in the good times so that when the bad times come, it can dip them? And because we haven't been able to raise them in recent years, does that lead to a bit of a problematic spiral? It's a really interesting question because the lower interest rates go, that the fewer tools central banks have in their arsenal to do anything to stimulate the economy. Because you know, if you're in a position where interest rates are at three or four percent, 
and you reduce interest rates to 1%, that has a massive impact on all of us because that affects all of us in terms of the cost of borrowing. And, and um, that encourages us to borrow more and spend more. But when, when your, your starting point is so low, how much economic room is there for central banks to go lower? But against this, there's, there's an overlay, which is what happened after the great financial crisis of 2008, is that central banks started to do something which economists at the time were very concerned about, which is quantitative easing, which is essentially, one, one, it's described as printing money. It's not actually that. What central banks did was they went into the market and they bought up a lot of corporate bonds, a lot of IOUs issued by, by uh, companies. And by buying them up, they pumped money into the economy. And at the time, economists thought this would be really inflationary. And actually, it wasn't. So what is beginning to happen is, I think, there is a change in received wisdom about what is economically wise. And so in the old days, controlling inflation was the be-all and end-all. That's what you had to do. Now, interestingly, and I think the pandemic has encouraged this, there's more thinking of, well, actually, it's not just about controlling inflation. It's about encouraging the economy. Now, on the one hand, at the moment, the UK government, like a lot of governments, has borrowed more than it's ever borrowed before. And people are concerned about that. But on the other hand, interest rates are so low that what the government has to pay by way of interest in relation to its borrowing is actually very, very small. So has government done the right thing by borrowing at a time when money is very, very cheap in order to keep businesses going, in order to keep employment going? The answer is yes. And, and so I think what we're seeing is, is what people call a, a, a paradigm shift or a secular trend. There is, there, there's, there, there's a change in the way economists look at economies. And I'm, I'm optimistic in this new world where government is more interventionist. That's actually not such a bad thing. Amazing. That is that is interesting, right? I hope our listeners are finding um, interest rates and um, this sort of thing around uh, the government trying to stimulate the economy and the kind of economic picture we find ourselves in today. Well, hopefully you have found it um, interesting. We're going to leave that story there for this week. Hopefully it's given you a really good sort of basis of what's going on at the moment, but also a little bit of an understanding of how interest rates work um, within the economy. And you'll hear loads about it on the news. And hopefully that gives a little bit of context for you. But we're going to move on to our third story. So the third story that we're covering on this episode of Thinking Commercially is something that has been in the narrative in the media quite a lot but it's come to uh, in the forefront over the over the last couple of weeks and it is the high street the kind of high street that we well know and possibly don't love quite as much um, anymore um, but obviously you probably would have heard the news that uh, Arcadia Group uh, the owners of uh, shops like Topshop um, went into administration um, last week um, but also you know lots in the context around um, shops having to shut over the last month and a half or so and then reopening um, about three or four weeks before Christmas and seeing how the high street reacts in this kind of COVID time, whether people are feeling confident, comfortable about going into doing their shopping in person and whether actually the high street is in a, in a decline or at least the shopping parts of the high street are in, in, a, in a decline, which will see the face of sort of physical shopping 
uh, the physical high street um, change over the last um, few years. I think if you look at a high street and compare it to 20 years ago, you might notice that it has changed quite a lot. You might see a lot more betting shops um, on the high street and a lot more um, sort of restaurants compared to actual physical um, physical shops uh, that you'll go um, more traditionally to go and do your shopping. But it looks like things are going to continue changing. Um, so, Chris, um, want to get your kind of thoughts on on sort of the high high street, how it might um, adapt, and also kind of give a bit of context around um, what happened to Arcadia and a few of the others high street shops that we've potentially um, lost over the last um, couple of years. Uh, well, this is very, very much part of a, a longer term trend. And, and I don't think these high street insolvencies uh, are only caused by the pandemic. I mean, I, I think we've seen change come to our high streets for some time yet, and the pandemic has just accelerated that. Um, but I, again, I, I tend to be optimistic about these things because the high street is changing. But I think that's because what we want is changing. And one of the interesting things, I think, is that this idea of ownership is, is starting to change. And, and partly it's because uh, the younger generation may be renting more and they don't want to cart a whole lot of stuff around with them. And so manufacturers, retailers like IKEA are beginning to experiment with renting furniture out. So you don't have to uh, take a whole lot of clutter around with you if you move flat. And one of the predictions around electric cars and driverless cars is that car ownership will itself decline. Because in the way that with public transport, you, know, you just get on the train when it turns up and then you get off the train uh, at your destination. I think especially with driverless cars, cars will become more of a service than a thing that you want to own. When you want to go somewhere, it's a bit like having constant taxis. Car will turn up and you step in it and you get out wherever you're going to. Why on earth would, would, would you, you need to own it? And I think what, one of the interesting things looking at the high street is the rise of charity shops. And a lot of other retailers say that charity shops have got an unfair advantage when it comes to, to business rates and they can undercut bookshops by selling books secondhand. But I see charity shops as recyclers. You know, which is what, because of climate change, we increasingly have to do. If you look at, uh, at vintage fashion, that's about recycling things that in the past might, might have simply been, been thrown away. So I, I, I look at this as just a further development. It means also that a, a lot of what used to be retail spaces are being converted into residential places. So this idea of people being able to live much more, um, much closer to the centre of town than they used to be. I think all of that's to the good. Definitely, definitely agree. And you used a magical phrase in, in, in terms of we were emailing about what we were going to be covering on, on the podcast today and uh, talking about how we've reached peak stuff as in we've got sort of too much. And yeah, I think delving into and what um, most people will know as kind of fast fashion, um, as well, where you know stuff is made usually abroad, um, usually maybe not the best quality, um, but um, it's very good. I'm thinking kind of you know shops like Primark maybe as a classic example. But there's loads of others uh, across the high street where um, the, the stuff is made quickly. It's it's made very cheaply, but maybe not designed to last as long. Um, as you say, there is this kind of environmental. Uh, factor about it also you know working rights in certain countries have been called into question sports direct is a classic example of 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 of, of that um and 
do we think that these companies will have to change, possibly put up their prices, go for a slightly different model in the future to um, A, compete, but B, kind of fit into what society wants, wants out of their uh, products? Well, I, I think that's a really good point, Ben, because I, I think we as consumers drive this. And you see, when, when, when I was growing up, we had much more of a repairing men mentality. So, you know, if you had holes in your socks, you wouldn't throw the socks away. Your mum would darn them for you. And I think what we're going to find is that people rediscover these, these almost uh, uh, craft-like skills that, that they used to have. So, for example, one of the things that's coming along at the moment are e-bikes, which are encouraging more and more people who don't feel they've got the pedal power to, to propel a, a bike up a hill with an e-bike, the e-bike gets you up the hill. Now, they're going to need to be repaired. And of course, bicycle repair shops have kind of gone out of fashion. But I think we're going to see more of that. And I was just thinking from a historical point of view, what's interesting is that uh, William Morris, who actually founded the Morris Mo uh, Car Company, which became in due course British Leyland and, and, and uh, uh, went through all sorts of different changes, he was originally a bike repair guy. He had, a, he had a bicycle shop where he repaired bikes and he ended up building cars. And although his name isn't very well known now, you'll, you'll have come across Nuffield Hospitals. When he became a Lord, he was Lord Nuffield, which was the name of the village where he lived. And he endowed a, a lot of hospitals. So he was somebody who started off as a, as a repair guy. And I think that that's what, what we're going to see. We're going to see a much more uh, artisan approach to retailing. Now, for example, I, I played bass guitar and uh, there is a very well-known bass guitar warehouse in Warwickshire where, uh, uh, which does mail order. But because they know that bass guitar players who tend to be quite geeky, they like to go and visit to have a look at all of these bass guitars. Although it's a warehouse and it's not a retail premises, They've got a little place where if you want to turn up, you can and have a cup of coffee and try out some of their guitars. And what I think we're going to find is that because businesses always have to have premises from which to trade from, that increasingly these premises, even if they're on, an, on industrial estates, not in the high street, interested people will want to go and, and, and see them. Uh, another case in point, uh, again, a bit geeky, I like playing board games. And actually, a lot of young people like playing board games as well. It's a, it's a growth growth industry because it gives you a rest from spending your day looking at a screen. Board game cafes are growing up in the high street because what they capitalize on is people want to get together. They want to meet other people. And that is, that is not going to change to the extent that there are, are, are board game uh, online retailers where you can now actually go to their warehouse and collect the game that you had ordered. So I think what we're going to find is that the whole retail space becomes more dispersed but the high street will remain a place where people go to meet each other. I think that's a really good point about the experience of shopping as well, because I guess like the more luxury brands, it, it feels like more of experience. You go for maybe half a day a day and, you know, spend time. You, you know, to be fair, I don't shop in any of those places, so I can't really comment exactly about how it works, but it looks like those kind of more experiences. And uh, as you talk about, um, sort of shops moving away from the high street. There's a classic example. I used to work in a very small independently owned sports shop when I was about 17, 18. And they were in a town high street, but they actually moved about half a mile outside of the town onto the industrial park in this little town. Um, 
and the reason they did that is because you know if you're doing if you're buying more reasonably priced sports equipment whether it's a hockey stick cricket bat you know sort of rugby it's quite nice to be able to have the space to give it a proper sort of you know wave around and to be able to possibly even sort of you know if it's a hockey stick or whatever hit a couple of balls or whatever it might be and um I think they've just benefited so much, even though they, they don't get the walking by business. It's very rare that you maybe walk by a sports shop and go, oh, I need to pick up something. Whereas actually they've got the people that are really committed to sports and want to actually go in and really have a good experience when they're sort of buying a maybe a slightly higher priced item as well. Um, so yeah, so I definitely see, see that happening. And with the ball games, with everything, it's about that kind of experience. People are still going to want to meet up. They might not want to meet up and quickly go into a shop to pick up a quick T-shirt or something, but you know, still, still giving, getting that kind of experience out of uh, shopping, retail, um, and other parts of uh, other parts of uh, different markets as well. Right, I think we will call it a day on that story. Just there, we have uh, one final story, a slightly more light-hearted story usually we've got quite in depth uh, into various bits and pieces so far so far today um, so hopefully a nice little sort of christmas message uh, christmas uh, story as well which uh, which uh, you can enjoy and so our final story is about reading um, it's been something that we've seen over lockdown. People have been sort of changing their habits. They've spent more time indoors. But there was an amazing stat that I saw on the BBC, I think, last month, um, where it said that two in five adults have read more in 2020. Um, so clearly, we've had to change our habits in 2020. Um, and uh, reading has been one of these things, which I think is a, is a fantastic thing to, to, to see. But we want to maybe uncover a bit more of the, the business side of it as we, as we do on this uh, podcast. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's very interesting that, that if one thinks of reading, one thinks of you know, Harry Potter uh, and Bloomsbury, who published Harry Potter. What's interesting about Bloomsbury as a book publisher is that it's actually transforming itself into a digital information business. Um, and I think that's interesting because the way we read now, and, and a, a lot of this commercial awareness is about how as humans we change our behaviors and how that drives the things that we need and that in turn drives drives business. But interestingly, when when tablet readers first came out, so trying to prompt us to stop reading hard copy books and, and move more online, humans were very resistant to this idea that we should move away from just turning the pages of a hard copy book. So the original tablet readers, that you actually physically uh, swiped swiped the, the screen in order to turn the page. Now that we're all used to that, tablet readers don't do that anymore. So uh, on the one hand, it's great that we're reading more. And that, that just reinforces my idea. Uh, we were exploring the last story that as, as humans, we still want to meet each other. We are social animals. We still want to read. That, that is a, a, a form of escapism for us. And so we will only tolerate small changes to the things that we, we fundamentally want to do. But I think there are other examples of, of rather more old-fashioned things, Ben, that we're also doing. Yeah, there is actually. Um, there's, I think what has been, so there's been a lot in the news which has been quite doom and gloom, of course. And actually the last couple of weeks have been slightly different um, in terms of the vaccine. We've then now got some 
you know, the Brexit news coming back as well. Now we've got the vaccine, um, which uh, is coming back quite strong. But within the last few months, there have been those kind of quite interesting, quite nice stories. And one of those is a company called Hornby. They're a model railway company. Um, and the story was they saw a year on year sales growth of 33% in the first half of this year. Basically, people spending more time at home, hopefully, you know, connecting at home as well, doing stuff where, you know, potential, you know, mums and dads can connect with their with their children through it and buying stuff for keeping their children entertained, potentially and stuff like that. And um, I think it's quite nice to nice to see. And it ties into that point that, you know, a lot of people make the kind of point, that, oh, you know, back in my day, all the kids would go out to the build tree houses and go to the park and now everyone's on online and, and stuff like that. But Chris, it feels like that it's sort of half this sort of maybe slightly more old fashioned fun has come in, but also still utilizing the kind of technology and um, enabling us to connect this year using those, that technology. What's, what's your thinking around that? Absolutely right. In fact, one of Hornby's best, best sellers when it comes to model trains is the Hogwarts Express. So, so uh, you know, you've got two traditional businesses, Bloomsbury and Hornby, but they're very good at, at branding and, and marketing. And what this reminds me of, it, it reminds me of um, um, after I'd been a lawyer uh, for a bit, I, I joined a publishing company. And the, the uh, CEO of the publishing company, he, uh, he was not somebody uh, who went in for much small talk. He was very driven by making a success of the business, and it was very successful. And um, he would kind of throw out bizarre questions. So we might be in a taxi together going, going somewhere. This is obviously many, many decades pre-pandemic. And um, he'd see a cyclist, and he'd say to me, are, are more people cycling to work? And I thought, well, that's a kind of bizarre question. Or in the cab, we might draw up at a traffic lights opposite a, a builder's merchant. Uh, but what they do is they, they sell stuff that, that builders will put in your or in your house and there might be in the window a, a shower you know and he would turn to me and say chris are more people taking showers than baths and he kept on throwing out these bizarre questions and i suddenly realized uh, after a while what he was doing he was and this was pre-internet day days so what he was and so all we sold as a publisher was hard copy magazines and books and what he was thinking all the time was how, how are changes in human behavior going to affect my business? So if more people are cycling to work than sitting on buses or trains, they can't read while they're cycling to work. Therefore, they are less likely to, to be able to use our products. If more people are taking showers than baths, you can, if you want to, read in the bath. You can read a hard copy magazine or book in the bath. You can't do that in a shower. So what it was actually from just listening to his questions that, I realized that commercial awareness was being constantly interested in the world around you and in human behavior and seeing what impact that would have on, on your business. So I'm sure that, that the, 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 the marketing experts at Bloomsbury or Hornby are looking at this current trend and thinking, right, how can we make, make the most of this for the long term? Amazing. I think it's kind of nice to sort of, sort of end the podcast on this because we've talked about how the tech giants and those that have had very tech enabled business have done really well out of the last year everyone kind of moving remotely especially businesses moving remotely but it is also good to see that railways books um also i think bisto gravy and custard have done really well as people have spent less time in restaurants and maybe tried out a bit more cooking during the the couple of lockdowns we've had as 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 well so it isn't just all these tech enabled businesses that are 
have done well in the, the last years, those that have been able to adapt or you know, maybe got a little bit fortuitous. There's always a lot of fortune in, in, in business in changing trends, but those who've been able to identify them and respond to them well, whether through their technology, whether through their marketing, um, or whether through just having the right products at the right time have been able to um, really do well in this difficult and very bizarre climate. I think we're going to leave it there. Um, Chris, it is always, always, always a pleasure to, to have you. Um, and I hope you enjoyed. Did you enjoy? I know we, the first one was all a bit kind of mad, all a bit crazy. How did you find the second one? It's, it's huge fun. I love talking about this stuff. I really do. And, and what it, it just reinforces uh, how optimistic I am about, about our futures. Because, uh, you know, the thing about business, it, it's very innovative. It, it's always adapting to new situations. And that's why talking about business, I, I, it, it, it just reinforces my optimism. Amazing. That is what a brilliant way to end our second podcast. Our, technically our Christmas special as well, because we'll be back in the new year somewhere around sort of mid-January to release our third episode of this. As I've said before, do get in touch, do get involved in any way you can. We look forward to hearing from you um, and have a fantastic Christmas, fantastic winter break, um, and we'll see you in the new year. We hope you agree that that was a fantastic episode. I massively enjoyed Chris's time and all of his insights on those key stories. Hope you found it interesting, um, but also it helped broaden your knowledge. We're really keen to get you involved. As we say, we do have a LinkedIn group, so check that out. Um, but we've also got lots of other great stuff coming up in the commercial awareness space here at Bright Network. If you ever want to get in touch, it's hello at brightnetwork.co.uk. Looking forward to hearing from you and have a fantastic Christmas.